Hello, and welcome to the season wrap-up episode here on Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. And I'm author Zachary Kellyan. Gordon, a successful 2022. And a successful second season. Yes, Did you indeed. think we were going to make it this far? I thought we would have been canceled long before now. Mm-hmm. But I don't look at the internet, so it could have happened. <laughs> they may have stopped paying us, and we're just continuing on without it. We're not, we don't have a sponsor? We do not have a sponsor. Or a corporate entity that we're answering to? I, I think we may be tied in with a corporate sponsor, but we're going to get to that because it has to do with our drinks tonight. <laughs> so we're recording this as the year is winding to a close in that kind of gray area that exists between Christmas and New Year's. And we just left Rob Roy. For those in Seattle who know Rob Roy, they... Mm-hmm are a fantastic cocktail bar, and they do an event known as the Miracle on Second every year where they do a whole host of wonderful Christmas cocktails. That's all you can order, oddly enough. You cannot order anything but the Christmas cocktails. The styling and the decoration and all that is like a gay Christmas Fantasia. I think it's fantastic. (laughs) Is that what they're going for? It's what I'm seeing. I think you're seeing that through gay-tinted glasses, my friend. Well, it is the holidays. We're about four cocktails deep at Rob Roy when we realized we never recorded a recap of season two. Yep, we said in the end of the No Country for Old Men episode, we were going to do a recap. So we hightailed it over here to the Stardust because that's where we do all our recordings, forgetting completely that Crystal takes the last week of the year off. A much deserved break. We're not, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not begrudging her that, but our favorite bartender is not here. And I don't know if it's just because I've had four cocktails already, but something is very suspect about what we're drinking right now. So when I was in college, they used to have this thing called Seagram's Escapes. And these things taste exactly like that. Are we sure that the substitute bartender isn't just pouring perhaps the strawberry daiquiri or the colada cooler into a glass and charging us $17 for it? I can't imagine the gall of doing that, but I did notice on the drink special board a suspiciously 1990s dated drink called Jamaican Me Happy. That sounds racist. Uh, I think it was in the 90s, and I think it still is, and uh, I suspect Seagram's is behind all of it. Yeah, because we're not making this up. This literally is the name of a Seagram's Escape, and so I think they're going to have to be our unofficial official sponsor here. They're going to love this because we will have things to say about each flavor. <laughs> they are terrible. <laughs> Spoiler alert, they're all terrible. Okay, um, with that... We wanted to do this recap. We did this last year as well. We also did a mid-season recap, which I hope we can do again in season three, because I feel like that was a chance to kind of, you know, see if we were on the right track, Mm -hmm. to, to see if we were having meaningful conversations, because I think we want to keep doing this thing that whatever it is we have here, as long as we feel like there's a relevant discussion that's not being had that we can have here. I feel like as we got into the second half of the year, we started to really dig into some themes that, yes, we'd kind of touched on before, but not in anywhere near the depth that we ultimately started having, particularly about this disillusionment of 
male identity Mm -hmm. through war. We ended up reading a couple books that weren't war novels, but we decided ultimately they were war novels. Uh, No Country for Old Men in particular. And then our listener's choice, which was All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay, so that that actually is a war novel, but or is it? Well, we had the background of like Stephen King's The Body, where you have a generation that's been impacted by the previous war and kind of the kids thinking about things through the militaristic lens. We read Yukio Mishima's Confessions of a Mask, which puts war in the background of the character drama that's actually happening in Tokyo at the time. Quite shockingly, like, I wasn't expecting the war angle in Confessions of a Mask. And then also we took a look at post-war Japan briefly in 3 Million Yen, the short story by Yukio Mishima, because there's a case where it's a country whose psyche and identity is sort of at odds with commercialism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how, how do you cope with this onslaught of a different worldview? And apparently the answer is prostitution. Or, I mean, again, we were never really told what happens, but right. I think it's left to the imagination that that's what had occurred. Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, we got to a lot of deeper subjects and kind of really got beneath the surface of some really interesting topics. It's amazing what you can accomplish when you no longer care about being entertaining as a podcast. Yeah, because we gave up on that a while back. <laughs> so one of the things that we did, and I wanted to get your thoughts on mm-hmm. it. And now that you've listened to the finished product and had some time and perspective, hopefully, to consider, we did a month where we didn't focus on a specific book. Right. We talked about Brett Easton Ellis as an author. And each one of the episodes that month was almost a different format into itself. Like, it was different each time. We didn't really plan it exactly. We didn't even decide until we sat down in the booth here at the Stardust which books we were going to talk about each time, except for the one episode we focused on American Psycho. And so I'm curious, do you think that that was effective? Is that something that you would consider doing in the future? Before I answer that, let me just take a quick drink of my both medicinal and flavorless cocktail. And what was it called? Um, it was some kind of uh, passion fruit mango concoction that the bartender claims he invented, but there was a lot of bottle cap opening in the making of it. Oddly enough, there was no passion fruit nor mango behind the bar. Yeah, that's that's awful. And while you're talking, I'm going to have a sip of this thing that is called a strawberry daiquiri, but it's pretty much the furthest possible thing from Hemingway's favorite beverage, you could imagine. It is red, but <laughs> I don't think... His lime daiquiri was... uh... No. (laughs) Um, I mean, judging by kind of some of our listener feedback, I think that approach of exploring an author's voice as a whole was very popular. People seemed to really enjoy it. Uh, We probably brought Mm -hmm. in some uh, Brett Easton Ellis heads that maybe hadn't been familiar with our podcast before. So I I hope that we do something like that again. I think there's a lot to be said for really taking an author's work in as a whole. It was fascinating to kind of do a deeper dive into this author that you and I have talked a lot about. You know, we kind of love him and hate him at the same time sort of acrimonious relationship with his writing but it was really fascinating to see the reoccurring themes that he tackled and then kind of his growth as an author over the course of you know 20 30 years and he's got another novel coming out next year which we might have to read we may have to read i think it's interesting that i don't feel like i either love or hate the writer anymore 
as a result of reading or rereading some of those books. But I would agree that there is an appreciation of the voice. Mm. And something that we had talked about, and maybe we'll give it a, a shot in season three, is looking more at multiple works by the same author. Maybe yes. not a whole month, but maybe comparing and contrasting more long-form novels with perhaps short stories, like we did with Yukio Mishima, where we read Confessions of a Mask and Three Million Yen. Totally different mm-hmm. you know, durations for those books and we get to see different aspects of the style and i know we talked about with hemingway particularly in season one that hemingway is someone who takes on very different voices depending on the book that he's writing Mm -hmm. it while there is a hemingway writing style there isn't necessarily a hemingway voice i don't know you've read more hemingway than me it's kind of the way i look at it I think you could look at it that way for sure. Yeah, I think that there's so much to be said for seeing how a true artist grows over the course of his or her career. I think especially when we are predominantly choosing authors that have a very strong voice, a very specific agenda in what they want to say. It's interesting to see the various ways they go about tackling that agenda in a literary way, Um, which is why I hope you'll all be joining us in 2023, July, for our complete works of Roderick Thorpe. No, 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 no. We are not doing any more Roderick Thorpe. That was, for our season one fans out there, that was by far the worst book of season one and probably my life, the novel that inspired Die Hard, which you just hosted a lovely Die Hard-themed holiday party at uh, one of your various mansions along the waterfront. Yeah, so it was a wine pairing where the individual wines were paired with scenes in Die Hard. And it was an excuse to eat Twinkies as well, because fans of Die Hard will know that Roderick Thorpe, in his original novel, did not mention Twinkies. But the movie, it went there. It's the main reason the movie's better than the novel. I would say so. That and not machine-gunning corpses in the hallway, which... Roderick Thorpe seemed to think was a necessary aspect of his literary vision. When a book is so bad, we're talking about it at the following season's recap. Yes. You know it's really stuck with us. But to kind of bring us back on topic, Bruce Willis was the star of Die Hard and also a spokesperson for Seagram's Escapes. That is a great callback. You're absolutely (laughs) right. And what was the character he had? Oh, Bruno. Bruno. The Return of Bruno. Yeah, yeah. So I I guess I kind of wanted to hear from you if there was anything that really... A highlight for you in terms of reading or discussion was there a book that we really tackled that you look back on the year and you're like man I'm so glad we read that I think the book that I would have never picked up had you not suggested it and that I'm really happy that I read was Confessions of a Mask I think from a personal perspective I think there's a lot there that I could relate to that I hadn't ever seen in that particular form so very happy about that I'm also really happy that we read The Body Mm -hmm. because I think it stirred up in me a lot of feelings of not having had those experiences that the boys in that novel had for a multitude of reasons. I think it actually gave me a lot of gave me a lot of perspective for the experiences that I think a lot of boys have and how those can form their identity later in life. Mm -hmm. The things that they've seen, the experiences they may have had with the parental figures in their lives, with the risks that were taken, with the bonds that were formed. You know, for a book that most people think of as like, you know, an adventure of of young boys, it is a tragic book. It is a deeply tragic book. It does not end well. Mm -mm. And feel like that's something that 
It's this innocence lost, this sort of boyhood experience that Stephen King really gives us a window into. And because that wasn't my personal lived experience, I feel like I took a lot away from that. You know, it's it's interesting to contrast those two specifically because I got a lot of our discussions through both of those. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was really interesting to me and, and I kind of thought about upon reflection is you were once a 12-year-old American boy. You were never a Japanese man during World War II. Mm-hmm. But you related to Confessions of a Mask on a much more deep level than I did because of the sexuality of the main character. And it kind of reinforced for me just those arbitrary distinctions we make between gay and straight in our society and kind of the messaging that was thrust upon us when we were 12-year-old boys about Mm -hmm. what was right or wrong with sexuality and how much that can actually distance somebody from their lived-in experience. How different a world you must have been living in as a young man kind of dealing with those feelings versus the world that I was living in. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fascinating that we have two very different writers as well Mm. who brought us these stories very impactful very insightful and what you're saying like very transcendent like it doesn't matter the time or the place these are very much realities I'll call out another fun moment that I thought we had it was part of the Brett Easton Ellis series where we talked about Brett Easton Ellis versus Chuck Palahniuk yeah and I've really I've continued to think about this because again as we talk about masculinity here We as men often have difficulty dealing with the expression of anger in a productive way Mm -hmm. of, of, you know, not channeling it into rage, but to find appropriate ways to deal with it, to, to be the better man, so to speak. I feel like both of these authors are really struggling with it. And they're struggling with it also with different degrees of sadness. Like the sadness of Brett Easton Ellis' characters, the disillusionment is incredible, versus Chuck Palahniuk, whose characters just act out. That's all they can do. Mm -hmm. And looking at that, it really reveals archetypes that we don't commonly distinguish. You know, that we don't commonly talk about those as male archetypes. But I think they really are. And I think it took these two very skilled writers across their repertoire of works in order to really flesh out the different manifestations of those archetypes. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about male despair and how that can translate into anger. Like you said, in Fight Club, they're kind of flailing outwards at society. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of kind of inward self-harm that's being done in the works of Brett Easton Ellis. Especially if you consider the fact that, you know, Patrick Bateman, it might have all been in his mind to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting when we kind of compare that with, you know, society as a whole. The kind of quote-unquote alpha males who are just part of this bullying culture and kind of throw their weight around, be it a boardroom or a locker room or what have you, Mm -hmm. versus these more quiet men in despair who we probably don't think about often. And we don't recognize that they're hurting because they're not demonstrative about their pain but these are the same people who are you know becoming mass shooters and becoming terrorists these things that are much bigger and much worse than your small town bully and it's interesting to me that we've got two writers who are tackling very much the same subject and showing how different men have different responses to that and i think maybe that's something that we can really take away from this season is that the discussion on masculinity is evolving and we're starting to see some books, uh, more recent books coming out discussing this more frankly, some things we're talking about perhaps for season three. But this isn't a simple one-size-fits-all kind of discussion that we need to be having. 
it is that there are many different types of men mm-hmm. and that what may work as a masculine code for lack of a better term, may not work for everyone. This notion of men and masculinity, which, you know, we continue to see even further in modern times is not even about necessarily gender. Uh, It transcends this notion of gender. And our eyes are pretty much just being open to that now. So, you know, I, I think in the parlance of our parents' generation that, you know, people would talk about, you know, the John Wayne masculinity the strong silent type and you know maybe that worked for like two percent of people right and okay like maybe i'm willing to accept that that was a masculinity of its time that worked there but i can guarantee it didn't work for 98 percent of people even if that was what was expected of a man at the time right even if that's how they projected to the outside world how they chose to raise their families how they interacted with society was that their authentic selves of course not mm-hmm. and i think it's going to be interesting you know looking 20 years into the future you and i are still essentially we are men who were raised by men who was who were essentially raised by that john wayne archetype mm-hmm. we're not that far removed from it but this upcoming generation this the millennial and the generation z have a much more open attitude to what being a man means to them. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see 20 years hence when those men have raised children and have influenced society, what masculinity looks like then. It, it could change completely. And there's a lot of white guys with podcasts who would have you believe that that's a dangerous thing and that's something that should be really feared and that it's society trying to tear down the idea of a man. And I think for those 2% who really are those strong silent types, I hope that they do remain because I hope that they get to be their authentic selves. But mm-hmm. I think the umbrella of masculinity and what we define as men in society is wide enough to encompass all types and all approaches. And I think, you know, we're not too far away from seeing a vision of that and what that might look like for men. And I think that's why I was really happy that we ended the season with a reading of Sticks yeah. by George Saunders. That to me, in those, what, 400 words, yeah. summed up so much of the conflict and the struggle that we're dealing with here and have literally just scratched the surface of. So I'm looking forward to continuing this discussion into season three. Umberto here, who runs uh, the Stardust, I think he is getting a little upset with us using the booth here, so we're going to have to uh, figure out some working terms here in order to continue. But uh, I think it's a pretty safe bet. We're not going to cross through the doors of the Stardust until Crystal is back. Yes. Uh, because I cannot continue drinking our unofficial sponsor, Seagram Escapes Beverages. Is, is the cocktail I'm drinking pink, orange, or some unknown color never before seen by man? All of the above. Exactly. Seagram's escapes. It's a color. <laughs> or is it? So I think then this is a good point to wrap up season two and to take a little bit of time off here and to start getting ready for season three. Yeah, we'll be having an episode coming out in the next week or so with a season three announcement so you can kind of get your reading going on those. We've taken a lot of your feedback into consideration for how we're building out that season. We'll be returning with regular weekly episodes in March of 2023. And as for right now, I I am so grateful that we have a chance to sit down and, you know, just kind of listen into some of the episodes over the season. Like, we could just do Handmaid's Tale again next year and have three completely different discussions about it. And I think that that's what is really a testament to the rapport that we've built over our friendship, but also especially growing with you all through this podcast. 
that we're able to kind of look at it from so many different angles and kind of understand more about our world through these great works of literature. It really is a joy and a privilege and the antithesis of the cocktails that we are drinking right now. That is a broken metaphor, to say the least. (laughs) But I think it's a perfect place to leave things here. So thank you for listening to Season 2. And until next time, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.